The idea that people are forced to leave because their home is unlivable is, well, it's nothing short of a tragedy. So we're going to have to look differently at our planet and its borders and the safe parts of it. And we're going to have to come up with solutions of how we deal with this heating earth, whether it's adapting by helping people move or changing our food systems, our energy systems, the materials we use, everything. It's going to be a century of adaptation. That's Guy Vince, award-winning author and science journalist. And today we're talking about the environment, exploring global warming, just transitions, which means moving to a more sustainable economy in a way that's fair to everyone. Guy Vince's latest book, Nomad Century, is an investigation of the most underreported seismic consequences of climate change, how it will force us to change where and how we live. Welcome back to Lives of Tomorrow. My name's Carla Bazashi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading trend forecasting company. Gaia, thank you so much for joining us. Please, can you start by introducing yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Gaia Vince. I'm a writer, a journalist. I'm a science journalist, and I'm particularly interested in how our human world, the human systems that we've created over hundreds of thousands of years of uh, cultural evolution, interact with earth systems. So things like the climate, where rivers flow, what a coastline looks like, the chemistry of the oceans, that sort of thing. And was there a pivotal moment or maybe a person during your career that's had the most impact on getting you either to where you are today or this very kind of specific interest that you have? You know, I wouldn't say there's any one moment or one person. I think I'm the product of all the different influences in my life. So whether that's my parents or whether that's environmental thinkers, writers, programs I've seen, books I've read, just curiosity and wonder about the world. So it's, yeah, probably the earliest fiction I read as a child, all about curiosity and adventure, you know, ventures that people have. It just stimulates an interest in finding out more about the world. And I've done that mainly through science and through writing. So I think I probably could have said this many times, talking at interesting times, if you're talking about the environment, if you're talking about climate change, if you're talking about the impact that human beings have on the planet, obviously that evolves constantly. But I do think this year in particular, it doesn't matter where in the world you are, you haven't been able to escape seeing with your own eyes the impact of climate change. And there are lots of parts of the world who are saying, well, we've dealt with this for years and years and we've seen certain aspects of it, but it does really seem to be a kind of crunch point right at the moment. Now, you've written vast amounts about the earth and how we as humans affect it. And in the research you're doing, in the writing you've done, is there any hope? I mean, is there anything that you're hopeful of at this moment? Oh my goodness, Carla, I'm never without hope. I think if you're without hope, you're in a really, really sad place. And I think that that's something that climate doomerists should really think about. What they might be doing is destroying hope for other people. We are agents of this extraordinary time that we're living in. We are the causing agents of it. We've produced this unstable climate, this uh, biodiversity loss, this very worrying crisis in in many, many parts of our world and, and the way we interact with it. But we've done it at the same time and in pursuit of better living standards. Uh, you know, we now live longer than ever. We live more healthily. Famine is, is fortunately a rare occurrence and restricted just to, to a few communities now, whereas it used to be something that stalked every single land, you know. So, People are generally good. 
They're generally nice. They're generally trying to work to create a better life for themselves and for other people, for their world. But the systems that we've created jointly over this time, particularly over the last few centuries, have led to this this crux that we're at today. But we also are more self-aware than we've ever been. We have more information now at our fingertips of what is going on around the world. We can see with our own eyes footage from Hawaii or footage from China, from our sitting rooms in London. So what that does is it expands empathy, but it also shows us just how powerful we are and the extent of our changes. So first of all, it's so lovely to hear positivity on what is a very difficult topic, I think, for lots of people to talk about. And you are getting in places, or what I see is people kind of unhooking from that. So they don't want to listen to the news. They don't want to acknowledge it. So it's really good that you you can see a positive way out of this. What green shoots are you seeing? And in your research, are there significant steps forward taking place that perhaps the general population aren't aware of and things that they could be doing at the moment to create this more positive reaction to current climate? Well, yeah, the first step is we all have to be a lot more aware. And that means opening up conversations. It means talking to each other, talking about climate change, normalise that this is a big threat. Just as we talked about COVID, just as we talk about petrol prices or food prices, you know, talk about climate because it is really, really important. And out of those conversations will come much more. We will give our leaders permission to act. So we are undergoing this transition right now to our electric dreams, right? We're moving from fire to electricity. We are saying goodbye to fossil fuels. The writing is on the wall. You may think, you know, from all the rhetoric that's going on around fossil fuels that, that, you know, opening up a new fossil fuel power station is a good investment or is something we need to do. We absolutely don't. And it's a really bad investment. And a lot of, of the biggest companies are actually trying to offload their assets because it's such a bad investment. So we are undergoing this transition. It's really hard to see because we're right in the middle of it. But, you know, by 2050, when my kids are grown up, they will look back on this time as the last time that it was, you know, common to see burning to generate energy. We will not be burning to generate energy. And that's extraordinary. That is such a massive revolution. I want to pick up on some of the ideas that you've written about or maybe talked about. And one of these is that you argue migration is not just a consequence of the climate change, but it actually might be a solution. Can you talk to me about that? You and I, before we started recording, were talking a little bit about, you know, I migrated out of the city during the pandemic. That wasn't necessarily anything to do with climate change, but there certainly has been that. And at WGSN, we've reported quite a lot on that, that migration because of people being unable to live, you know, near coasts where water levels are rising. And, you know, there's, there's lots there, but you're talking about this again as something which might be a solution rather than a consequence. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. As the decades pass this century, what we're going to see is years like this year that we've just had. You know, this is going to be one of the best years that we will experience in terms of climate disasters. And just to recap, Canada's been on fire for months. The Hawaii, Maui, one side of it is completely 
you know, it's, it's like a devastated war zone. It's completely destroyed. There's just countless climate disasters where Southern Europe been on fire again, Slovenia, terrible floods, Korea, terrible floods, China, flood, drought, fire, everything. This has been an absolutely devastating year. And yet it will be one of the best years that we're going to experience over the coming decades. If we look at the climate models, what we see over the coming decades is an increasing zone of uninhabitability across essentially the middle of our planet, the tropics. It's already started. And that zone of uninhabitability, you know, that increasing area where it just becomes difficult to live goes all the way up into southern Europe, Spain, Italy, and down as far as the southern tip of Africa to all of Asia, Australia, all the way down to Patagonia in South America. I mean, it's a really large zone where people for, you know, large populations for large portions of the year will not be able to live there. Now, it also includes, of course, coastlines because of sea level rise and erosion, river deltas where many of our biggest cities are around the world. And so what we're going to increasingly see is people not just moving, being displaced by disasters within their own country, which is what we mainly experience today, but uh, having to cross borders because of multiple disasters within those countries and crossing regions because, you know, we're going to increasingly see these cascading effects where one disaster like heat leads to drought, you know, because it dries the soil and that leads to tinder conditions where you get fires. It leads to the atmosphere holding a lot more water because hot air holds a lot more water and then you get these deluges. So you get drought, then fire, then these flash floods that erode soils, wash away infrastructure, people's homes, their livelihoods. And it just wears down resilience. So communities cannot kind of rebuild after these disasters continually. And we're already seeing, you know, the effect with insurers moving away from some of these communities that are in danger zones. We're going to have to start seeing retreats. So we're going to see displacement of people. You know, I'm actually in favour of migration. I think more of us should move. I think it broadens the mind. It you know, introduces us to new cultures, languages, understanding of different people. It's really important. But the idea that people are forced to leave because their home is unlivable is, well, it's nothing short of a tragedy. So we're going to have to look differently at our planet and its borders and the safe parts of it. And we're going to have to come up with solutions. I mean, my book, Nomad Century, is very much a book of solutions of how we deal with this heating earth, whether it's adapting by helping people move or changing our food systems, our energy systems, the materials we use, everything. It's going to be a century of adaptation. We need to think long term. We need to have a vision of what Britain looks like, of what London, Manchester, Edinburgh, Glasgow, what do they look like in 2040, in 2060? Because now is the time to build that industry, to build that infrastructure, to make sure there is enough housing, education, and to help people move that can then become the social networks that help bring other people over so that it isn't a huge burden on the state. It is in instead building a larger, more vibrant economy for the future. It's so interesting because normally, if we look at the way the media controls this narrative, immigration is seen as a political issue. Now, politics is involved because politicians are making rules up and they're responding to 
I was going to say, you know, consumer demands, but let's say voter demands in this instance. But the way you're framing it is really interesting. I don't see, I don't hear those conversations happening in kind of big positions of power. Do you think they are happening anywhere behind closed doors? Or do you think we we have this big problem to this leap from a positive conceptual view of this to actually how that might manifest itself? Because if we are building cities of the future today for tomorrow, that needs to have started already. And it doesn't seem to be. It's so easy to create this narrative that all the problems that you have as an as a citizen in your life are down to these, you know, these awful people taking your stuff. And that narrative is something to be expected from populist um, right-wing governments. But the absolutely shameful abdication of responsibility, I would say, has been from centrist and left-wing parties to challenge this with a much more progressive narrative based on reality and based on sort of pragmatic needs going forward. Right, Guy, we're going to have a complete shift in tone now because I want to get some of uh, my less serious, more lighthearted questions out before you and I just get completely into this and we go way past the end of the time that we've got. So um, quick fire questions, nothing to do with the topic in hand, and then we'll come back to this. Um, when and how do you prioritise yourself? I have a shower every day, sometimes two showers. And that is, uh, that's the only time I'm clever generally in the day when, okay. <laughs> when I'm having a shower. I'm very clever in the shower. <laughs> Good thinking time. What will you eat if you're home alone and no one is watching? Well, I'm home alone and no one's watching pretty much every day. So whatever's in the fridge. <laughs> so, okay, well then let me reframe that. Are there any guilty secrets when it comes to your eating habits that you want to confess to us now? I don't feel guilty about food. I love food. <laughs> Okay, well then here we are. The minute I can get something out of this. What is your bad habit? I probably interrupt people too much. That's terrible, really bad. When did you last learn something new that had an impact on the way that you live your life? Well, I think if I'm not learning something new every day, there's something going on that's wrong in my life. Or maybe I'm maybe I'm on holiday, which never seems to happen. Um, so I learn things that are new every single day. and And of course, they impact my life. Do you deliberately seek things out to make you think in different ways? Do you, is that part of being a journalist, being a researcher, being so interested in this aspect of the world that you are? Do you think you are, you're constantly, I guess, challenging your brain to understand new things? I think so, yeah. I think absolutely. I'm very curious. I think it's just um, I've always got a drive to learn more, to find out more about people and the world and, and how things work. Absolutely. What was the last series you binge-watched? maybe Ted Lasso. I love Ted Lasso. Right, there we are. Just a little interlude. I want to pick up on the idea of transition cities or just transition cities, which was a bit of a new concept for me. Can you explain a little bit about them and why this might also be part of the solution? So we all have to adapt. Well, first of all, because we live in a very carbon intensive world. So our world was built on burning stuff and burning stuff produces carbon dioxide emissions, which are the cause of the climate change issue that we're facing, the crisis. So we have to move away from that. And burning stuff has been involved in the manufacture of the materials, the, uh, the way we heat our homes, the way we transport ourselves, the way we cook our food, literally everything. So we need to decarbonize essentially, and we need to move into much more sustainable forms of living, so shapes of living. So there's been various different initiatives to spur this on. And, and cities, which is where the majority of humans now live in the world and will be, you know, by 2050, 
at least three quarters of us are going to live in cities. They're incredibly important. And they're important because they are massive users of energy, resources, all of those things. They're kind of like factories, but they take those resources from elsewhere around. You know, the food comes from somewhere else. The water comes from somewhere else. All the materials come from somewhere else. And and they're sort of brought into the city. But they're actually the most efficient way of housing large numbers of people. Because when you live in a city, generally your own carbon emissions are lower. You don't drive. uh, You get public transport. You live, um, tend to live more densely. Your heating bills aren't as high. You know, you can share all sorts of commodities and resources and so on. So it's generally a much more efficient way of living. So it makes sense for cities to kind of lead the the route there. So there's various initiatives. One of them was transition cities. Then there's the C40 cities. That's a really great group where mayors, city mayors sort of took the initiative. And that's been actually really important if you look at the history of our decarbonisation, which has been, you know, scientists have been telling us since, you know, the 1980s that we need to decarbonise. City mayors in a lot of places sort of showed real leadership and they started ambitious plans to, for example, a lot of the C40 cities have introduced kind of car-free zones, pedestrian centres, they've boosted cycling and other forms of transport over cars. And you really get a feel, especially in a lot of European cities now, that the centres are you know, they have had this renaissance. Yeah, as a consequence, because they feel nice. People want to be there because they're green. There's less pollution. They want to linger. It feels safer. They have more, literally more space to move around and they become sort of owned by the community again. So people can stop and have chats, whereas before they were very much marginalised to the edges of these kind of choking streets and these then the cars parked everywhere, you know, um, and pedestrians were really kept out of that. Now we have these, you know, cafe culture has really expanded. We do get more greenery and there are all sorts of other initiatives like um, the opening up of rivers and waterways to cycle lanes and, you know, the greening of them, whereas a lot of them were sort of concrete off and tried to almost be controlled in a way that that hid them from view. They were almost an embarrassment to our cities. And now we're really embracing that in a different way. So, And city mayors have led on all sorts of things. We have in London, we have the ULES zone in an attempt to um, keep the most polluting cars from causing asthma. I mean, I actually live down the road from a little girl who died a few years ago of asthma and that uh, her mother led this campaign which led to the first court judgment which said that her death due to asthma was a result of the air quality from polluting cars and that that's the sort of evidence and data that mayors need to drive these changes that do clean up our air I grew up in a little town called Stroud in Gloucestershire and since I've left, they have opened up all the canal ways and the canal paths. So not only is that boosted biodiversity because everything has grown up around them, people are walking, people are cycling. It's now part of the tourist attraction that people go there and little cafes have popped up and it's just it's a very simple move. And it has regenerated an entire town, which is amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that people miss, so so when we talk about our crises, they are very interlocked. So we have a poverty crisis, a social injustice crisis across the world. We have the climate crisis. We have biodiversity loss. We have water 
um, issues. We have food production crisis and they all intersect. You know, the worsening climate affects biodiversity, causes extinctions, and that worsens food production. It causes devastation um, to the poorest people. They all intersect. But the upside of that interconnectivity is that if you act on one of these areas, you get these multiple benefits and these feedbacks that everything then kind of can feed off and become better generally. I think you're right. There's this narrative, isn't it, that doing good for the environment is going to cost more. And what you're pointing out here actually is that doesn't need to be the case. And actually the the opposite in many cases is true, which kind of brings me on to something else that this maybe idea that environmentalism is a middle class issue, or maybe not a middle class issue, but that only the middle classes have the resources to be able to worry about this. Now, I know you're going to disagree with it, but I want to give you the opportunity to disagree with that because it comes back to this point about do something good and not only do, does everybody benefit, but economics benefit as well as the environment. Yeah. So first of all, the communities who are most affect, disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and actually by biodiversity loss as well, are the poorest and most marginalised. Now, that's true globally. So people living, the poorest people living in the global south, they're the ones that are most likely not just to lose their homes, but to lose their lives as well. But this is true across the world. They're the ones most likely to suffer starvation and so on, as well as as, um, other impacts. But it's also true within our cities. You know, if you look at say, Hurricane Sandy, who were the people that died? Well, they were the poor black people living in basement party, basement apartments, the poorest apartments, who drowned. If you look at New Orleans, who are the people that are dying there? Exactly the same populations. It's almost always true that the worst affected are the ones that cannot afford to bolster their resilience because it's expensive. Okay, So they can't afford, they're dying of the heat waves because they can't afford air conditioning. They're dying because they're drowning because they can't afford to shore up their, their homes and so on. And they can't afford to live in the more protected areas. They can't afford climate protection, essentially. So we already have a sort of climate apartheid going on. So it's in the interests of all of us to deal with that because it will affect all of us. But in terms of only middle class people can afford to worry about the climate, I think that's inherently quite patronising as well of many groups that I talk to, whether it's, you know, supermarket attendants, um, you know, cashiers who are worried about global warming or whether it's children at school or whether it's the caretaker at a museum I was at the other day. It's, It's not just middle class people, they're just the voices we hear the most of because middle class people dominate the media narrative, they dominate politics and they're they're most often represented. We've talked about who's, I guess, creating the headlines and how this information is filtered to the general population. You've talked about your children as well during our conversation. How do you think that we should be framing this information for a generation that's getting most of their news via social media platforms like TikTok? How do we make sure that the solutions of which you've spoken so eloquently about are getting to that younger generation who, by and large, are very passionate about this topic, but might not be reading about these solutions? They might not be reading your book. They might not be listening to documentaries on it. How do we make sure that that information is landing where they are? 
Well, we have luckily this um, incredible group right now of young activists, very eloquent activists, you know, everyone from Greta Thunberg to there are so many who are doing this job really brilliantly, but differently. You know, I think for me, the most important thing is to generate that vision. We can all do it in our own head. What do you want the London of 2040 or 2050 to look like? What is important to you in that city? What Cardiff of 2055? What, you know, what do you want it to look like? For me, it's a large, vibrant city where there is opportunity, right? Where you have purpose in life. You know, it's not a depressing place. So there are vibrant industries. There is a future there. But where the air is clean, where you can swim in the rivers, where there is enough food, enough water, where you can get from A to B quickly and easily without risking your life or your security. I want that sort of thing. I want to live in a green city. I don't want to live in a polluted city. And then when you have that idea in your head, so how do we get there? right? What are the pragmatic steps? Because we actually know that, but we don't, I guess, know how to prioritise that. So I would say have that vision, share it with other people. That's how every single thing that we have today started. It was an idea in someone's mind that was shared with someone else, was shared with someone else, and then they took the steps to make it real. So I'm going to end where we started and ask you, are you more hopeful or anxious about the future? I'm always hopeful. I'm always hopeful. Perfect. Guy, thank you so much. Thank you for joining this podcast. That's it for today. Thank you again to my guest, Guy Vince, award-winning author and science journalist. I hope in this episode you've learned something new and maybe formed a view on today's topic. Next week, WGSN's Create Tomorrow podcast is back with another episode on product design. I'm Kala Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time.